Hey everyone, one of the anchors of Midtown is finally closing and it could signal the start of something bigger. Plus, why HISD could be facing a major budget issue. And we're talking Houston's top musical artists of 2023. Houston Landings education reporter Asher Layer-Small and Pulitzer Prize finalist Evan Mintz join me to recap those stories and more. It's Friday, December 1st, 2023. I'm Rahil Ramzanali, and here's what Houston's talking about. All right, Evan Asher, before we get to the news, I know everyone's hyped up on their Spotify raps of the year and Apple Music recapping everyone's music choices for the year. So who was your top artist of the year, Evan? Come on, give oh, it to me. My top artist of the year, my top song of the year was Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bengals. Wow. And that is because my kids listen to the song on repeat whenever we drive around anywhere. Um, I also want to point out that when Barack Obama released his songs of the summer, uh, this song was on that list. So, you know, Obama and I are basically best friends now. Yeah, I think you are. And you definitely have that Obama taste, right? Like, I know you've got some Drake on there as well, some Bad Bunny, <laughs> right? A little bit. <laughs> uh, besides all of like the kids music that's on there, it was also Steely Dan. And, like, okay. That's it. Gotcha. How about you, Asher? Who was your top artist of the year? Uh, I was on a bit of an Afrobeats kick, so I had Burna Boy was my top artist. Nice. I like it. I love putting on some Burna Boy and then putting the Create Station and then you get the new African rap music. It is so good. Agreed. Okay, so here's Houston, by the way. Houston's top five artists. And it looks like it was, you know, pretty chalk here. Taylor Swift, number one. Mm -hmm. Drake, number two. Mm -hmm. uh, Bad Bunny, number three. The Weeknd, number four. And then Peso Bruma, number five, which was a big surprise because he is now on that mainstream bubble. Like everyone is starting to learn about Peso, which is kind of cool because his story is fantastic. He's making some really cool music and Houston loves him. So I like that. And he also had the number one song of the year in the city of Houston, which was uh, Ella Baila Sola. So shout out to him. 2024 might be the year of Peso Pluma. Mm -hmm. Well, Asher, let's get to our biggest story. and I'm going to let you kick it off. What do you got? Sure. Yeah. For me, the biggest story of the week is that uh, early voting for runoff elections is underway. So far, it looks like uh, might be a little bit sluggish turnout. Um but it is running now through December 5th for early voting. And then the runoff election day is Saturday, December 9th. Um, the biggest contest, of course, is going to be the Houston mayor's race, which is featuring State Senator John Whitmire against Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. And also on the ballot, though, we've got uh, the mayor of Bel Air and then a bunch of other city, a bunch of city council positions. The Houston mayor's race in that one, Whitmire does have an edge on Congresswoman Jackson Lee by about seven percentage points, but there's still 22% of voters in the most recent poll, which came out at the beginning of this week, said they're still undecided. So, you know, there's some wiggle room there. We'll see how it goes. Um, there's been about 46,000 votes cast through the end of Wednesday. That's what Harris County said. Um, but officials said they expect it to pick up closer to election day. Um, if you're trying to decide who to vote for, I'm going to give a quick plug for my colleague, Paul Cobbler. He has a side-by-side -side on the issues for, for 
Jackson League versus Whitmire. So you can kind of check out where they stand. Go over to the HoustonLanding.org to find that out. Um, and, you know, make sure that you get your vote in, whether you like to vote early or on election day uh, through Tuesday. Polls are going to be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., uh, except Sunday when they open at noon and just bring some form of identification, driver's license, passport, um, handgun license. There's a bunch of different things at work. I mean, I've been struck how finally, like in the the last days of the runoff, it seems like we're getting a little energy in the campaign. The candidates are starting to throw some punches there. I saw Sheila Jackson Lee attacking Whitmire for his work as a lobbyist. And I saw Whitmire attacking, of all people, Mayor Turner. Mm -hmm. Like that was kind of interesting to me, saying that Turner's appointments at the city haven't been diverse enough, which I look at the the list of uh agency heads and folks he's appointed looks pretty diverse to me, but you know, I'm not running for mayor, but why attack someone who's not running for office? Why attack someone who had been your buddy forever in the legislature? I know that Turner has endorsed Sheila Jackson Lee, but just seems so weird to me. It feels like this is a fight among personalities rather than over policy. And I don't really like that. But that's what it always turns into, right? Is that personality fight. Policies rarely get brought up in moments like this. For me, at least, like I, I don't mm -hmm. remember a single policy issue in this runoff or in the actual election. Give me one. What was a big policy issue here between both of them? I mean, the only difference I've seen in Asher weigh in is that Whitmire wants to bring in DPS officers to help supplement HPD. And Sheila Jackson Lee says that's probably not a good idea. But everything else, they seem to be kind of mealy-mouthed. Like, asked about bike lanes, Whitmire says, well, that's not top priority. We're going to take it thing by thing. And Sheila Jackson Lee says, yes, we're going to do that, and we're going to do it where it's appropriate. Like, okay, that's kind of the same answer, but from different directions. <laughs> yeah, I, I ditto that, Evan, in the sense that, you know, there's obviously a bunch of hot-button issues, but lacking specifics about how that's going to change. Um, so, you know, Crime and public safety is in there. Um, obviously, there's questions about how they'll um, spend the city budget and, and keep housing costs lower for Houstonians. But um, missing are like the hard, specific plans about how that's going to happen. And I think voters yeah. often are looking for those. Oh, yeah. I saw Whitmire talking about the budget and he says, well, I got to get in the office and pop the hood to see what's going on. No, you don't. The budget's public. You yeah. can say what you want to do now. <laughs> yeah, like how are there not specific answers yet in this race? And that's what's frustrating watching from the outside. It's like, really? Are we just are we just going to go off vibes again? Like, this is what we're doing. Like, can we actually get some solutions? Can we get some proposed solutions, please? And it seems like that's not going to be the case. And we'll find out what happens. And of course, as you mentioned, Asher, early voting going on right now. And if you forget to vote during early voting, I feel like election day on December 9th, I don't think there's going to be too many people there. So I don't think there's going to be long lines, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. you want everyone to vote. Exactly. Evan, let's get to your biggest story. Oh, my biggest story, and this has been decades in the making, is that Greyhound has said they are moving their Midtown station. Finally, for anyone who has driven down Main Street, you've probably noticed a big mass of people just kind of milling around on the sidewalks outside, and that is the Greyhound Station, next to the former 
McDonald's, yep. which had a similar decrepit situation. And that general triangle there of folks, when I talk to people who work in the Houston Fire Department, say they get calls out there all the time for overdoses, for EMS issues, for other problems. And I found an article dating back to 2002 in the Chronicle talking about how this Greyhound station has been a hotbed for crime. One of the things that people point out is that when folks leave Huntsville, leave the Huntsville prison, they come there and they get dropped off basically in their hands what they had with them when they went in. Now, the risk isn't those people who are trying to reintegrate into society. The risk are the folks who surround around that, trying to pull them back in, try to take advantage of them. And that brings a bad element to the area. And we've known that forever. And the desire to see Midtown improve, to see it raise that standard of living has relied on uh, Greyhound getting out of there, and it is finally happening. We saw the McDonald's go down. We saw the Greyhound moving. We see the Pierce Elevated is about to come down, and we're going to see the section of the Southwest Freeway that separates the Museum District from Midtown going below grade. We are going to stitch together these three separated neighborhoods, Downtown, Midtown, Museum District, into one cohesive walkable, dense core. And once that happens, I really think we're going to see an incredible transformation. At the same time, the Greyhound station isn't going away. It's just moving to the east end. And representatives from the neighborhood are angry that they are getting this bus station without any conversation. Carol Alvarado, a state senator, said nobody was notified about this. So, you know, what's good for one part of the city may not be good for another part of the city. But all across the country, Greyhound's parent company is moving out of downtown locations. So it's going to happen one way or another. It's funny, the Greyhound and McDonald's right there, it almost became a meme, right? Like it became a yeah. crime meme. And I, we don't have numbers. I don't have numbers specifically to back this up. Like were, were there more crimes in that area or not? But everyone was like, you got to stay away from that area because of that of that tag team of McDonald's and Greyhound. And it was like, ooh, you just want to stay away from there. But the second thing is, why haven't we put more pressure on whether it be HPD, Greyhound, to clean it up. Like, it, mm -hmm. why can't it be part of Midtown or why can't it be part of the East End and actually do something good over there? And it serves a purpose for a lot of people. Why can't we clean it up? I, I think you hit on something really uh, important there, which is that part of fighting crime isn't just your usual patrols and just arresting people, but looking at the surrounding environment. If certain buildings are attracting blight for whatever reason, you should tear down those buildings. If there's certain areas that don't look nice and for whatever reason that makes people think they can get away with things there, you make them look nice. You tear down blight, you clean and green. And that is part of the crime fighting strategy. And just looking at it from that big picture, shutting down that McDonald's, shutting down the Greyhound station is how you get rid of crime. It doesn't just displace it to other areas. Sometimes you get this uh, agglomeration effect where a whole bunch of things together uh, help make things worse. And if you just start to take them away or spread them out, you don't get that compounding factor in the same way. All right, I'm gonna get to my biggest story here and it's unfortunately Harris County Jail, which is back in the news and we've been talking about it all year long. And this time, it's because a detention officer has been arrested and charged for allegedly smuggling drugs into the Harris County Jail. And this is the second arrest in an ongoing investigation looking into an influx of narcotics inside the facility. And this story comes from Houston Public Media. The second arrest was last week when 77-year-old defense attorney Ronald Lewis was arrested for delivering drug lace papers to incarcerated people during multiple in-person visits at the jail. 
Now, earlier this week, Sheriff Ed Gonzalez did talk about how this investigation was ongoing and how the arrest of the 24-year-old worker, Robert Robertson, uh, was months in the coming. And he started with Harris County Jails when he was 18, y'all. Like he, he's been working there for six years and this happened. So we're getting a little bit more insight onto what's been happening at Harris County Jail. We have these two arrests and maybe these are the first steps of fixing one of the biggest issues right now in the city of Houston in all the inmates dying in Harris County Jail just overflowing. Maybe this will start, I don't know, a change, Evan? I, I, I don't know, but I'm glad that something's being done. I am skeptical of the attempts to try to restrict drugs in incarcerated facilities by preventing people from sending in mail, because we've seen this happen at facilities all across the country, federal facilities in the state of Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, in New Mexico. And when they do this, one, it really cuts off people from their friends and families. And maintaining those personal connections is something that really increases chances of success after release. Two, the scanning process, and we've seen this happen, doesn't always work. You know, a kid draws a beautiful picture, you get like a cheap 10 cent Kinko's copy of it in black and white. That's not the same thing. Sometimes you can't even read the letters that people write. And third, when this has gone into effect, you haven't actually seen a decline in contraband. Like the issue isn't around necessarily the stuff that other people are sending in. No, it's around the folks who work in that facility. And often they are poorly paid. They don't have a lot of other options. Uh, and so we need to raise those standards to make sure that people are uh, holding stuff up to the what we would expect rather than just desperate to try to get people to work in that facility. Mm. And I'm not an expert on this issue, but I will say just the the ability to physically hold something that a loved one wrote with their handwriting, I think is a powerful. And I know there was a big controversy when uh, there, there was a ban on jail mail in Harris County facilities. But um, I didn't know those numbers, Evan, that it hasn't been shown to reduce contraband, but that's really interesting. And it makes me wonder, you know, if that's the big issue, why can't there be a more um, effective kind of process to make sure papers aren't laced with something um, on the outset? Yeah. To me, it's like, wait, how do we not catch somebody working there bringing in, you know, narcotics? The other one with the attorney, you can clearly see in the video, allegedly, like he's just walking in with these drug lace papers. So, you know, maybe cleaning that up will help. I don't know. But yeah, this was just another story on a really bad year again for Harris County Jail. All right, Asher, let's get to your most overlooked story. Yeah, thanks for heel. So um, on this one, I'm going to self-deal a little bit here because um, there was a story on HISD that I was working on this week that I think is really important that maybe people didn't quite pay enough attention to. Um, there's been this question for a long time about, you know, we know there's all sorts of changes going on in HISD, but you know, what are the trends in terms of are, are people coming to the district? Are people leaving the district? Now, mind you, for several years, HISD has been bleeding students, so the enrollment has been going down. Um, but I got data, and it's preliminary data. It's not yet vetted by the Texas Education Agency. They're still doing some work to validate it, but the data I got showed that um, HISD saw the second biggest enrollment drop uh, in a decade this year. So wow. lost about 6,000 students. The only time that they lost more in one year was the first full year after the pandemic, which 
all across the country, we saw the big city districts losing students to the suburbs um, at that time. So this is really significant that there'd be such a big drop. Um, it has implications for the funding that HISD is going to get from the state. So we're talking about, um, you know, about in the, in the tens of millions of dollars here, because the way the state funds school districts is based on average daily attendance. So that means that less students, less money. Um, now HISD told me that they are going to make the most of whatever resources they have. They're going to, um, maximize that and, they're not worried about the budget, but at the same time, there's community members who have already been concerned because this year the district is running a deficit, pretty sizable one at about a quarter billion dollars. Um, so where things go is still a bit uncertain. Yeah, Mike Miles has talked about paying teachers more and then as they also pursue the district of innovation, that's going to increase teacher pay as well. So they are using that rainy fund right now, right? Asher, there's about 900 million in that. They're using about 250 million. And each student that drops, that's about $6,000 from state funding. So yeah, this is going to be something to watch out for. And even if those students didn't drop, we asked Mike Miles this when he was here on CityCast Houston about that is, hey, look, you're raising this budget. You're giving teachers a lot more money and you're kind of not within budget. So is this just going to be the new norm? And he's like, yeah, this is it. Like, we're just going to pay people more and <laughs> budget be damned almost. Well, you're totally right about those numbers. And um, the thing is, HISD does have that safety net, that cushion, as you said, with the $900 million reserves right now. But they're eating into it pretty fast, you know, Um the the state recommends that districts keep about a quarter year's worth of operating expenses on hand to keep a good bond rating. So in HISD, that'd be a little over 500 million. So there isn't that much wiggle room. Um, you, you know, the, the plans that Mike Miles is implementing, it's hard to see how they're not really expensive because as you said, they're, they're paying teachers more that the schools that are getting over overhauled actually have more staff. They have about somewhere in the ballpark of a quarter to a third more staff at those schools. So it's the budget process is coming up in the new year. Um, that'll start, I think, in January and run through the spring. And we'll see kind of what they're projecting then. I mean, I'm just kind of struck that you have Mike Miles and his team able to engage in policies and behavior that if a normal routine elected school board were to do, they'd get critiqued for, they get attacked for, they'd say they're not following best practices. I, I'm just kind of shocked by that. And it seems to contribute to this overall sense that Miles and state leadership too, don't really want to lift up HISD. I want them to succeed. I hope they do. But this general attitude in reality seems to be dragging down its reputation and making HISD seem like it's worse than it actually is. We all know that HISD has some of the best schools in the state, if not the country. You've got your Carnegie Vanguards, you've got your HSPVA, you've got your IB programs, and you kind of wish that the state and Miles would hold these up and say, these are some great schools. We want to replicate these. We want more students to have opportunities to do stuff like this. Instead, they're just picking fights. They're focusing on schools that admittedly do have problems and need to be addressed. But it's like talking about your worst aspects when, you know, the HISD's got, what, 270 schools. Asher, thank you for, for providing that number. Um, it's got good and it's got bad. Let's focus on the whole picture. Yep. And, you know, to be 
to to be fair to the district, the, the schools that the superintendent is focusing on, he's pouring resources into them, and they've been um, in, in some some would say neglected for many years. Um, mm-hmm. And what's true is that the superintendent and his team have a very clear vision about what they think translates to success for students. Now it's just going to be time that will tell um, as to whether that actually pans out. All right, Evan, let's get to your most overlooked story. My most overlooked story, we already talked about the election, but I want to go further down the ballot to some of the city council races, because if you look at the candidates, uh, there's this technical political science term, uh, cuckoo wacko bird. (laughs) And some of the candidates running are cuckoo wacko birds, and there hasn't been enough coverage of this. Let's look at at large two, where you've got Nick Hellyer, kind of a boring routine endorsed by Democrats and Republicans, former staffer running against Willie Davis, who has run twice before. He's an anti-hero pastor. And oh, he has a homestead exemption on a home outside city limits. So either he's lying about living in the city of Houston, which you're not supposed to do, or he's lying about his homestead exemption. Like, which is it? Cuckoo wacko bird. Don't vote for that guy. Or you've got Letitia Plummer against Roy Morales. Letitia Plummer, incumbent. She's sparked some controversy because she's been outspoken on issues of policing. But I think sometimes you want some of those outsider voices. She's running against Roy Morales. Morales has run at least six times since 2005, was fired from his job at the city's emergency center. And I remember talking to him back in 2013 on the editorial board, and we found a YouTube video of him at a 2005 Minuteman rally claiming that undocumented immigrants were being sent in by China and Russia and Al-Qaeda as a way to get into our country without launching, quote, million-dollar nuclear weapons. And when we asked him, like, where'd you get this from? What is this? He goes, quote, yes, I know a lot of things. And yes, I can't say things like I don't want a guy pretending to be some sort of James Bond spy on city council. You want normal people who are going to look at the budget, make sure the contractors are giving money to our actual companies who haven't just been around for three months and are just going to do the routine meat and potatoes basics job. Avoid the wacko cuckoo birds. Vote for the boring, competent candidates, for the love of God. And that's the hard part, right? How do you find out who is who, right? Because look, let's be honest, a lot of people were not going to research it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I'm glad that you're bringing some of these names up, but it's hard to find out who these people really are. I found that the the Houston Chronicle editorial board has done a pretty good job because they they don't have a partisan uh, alignment. They have their own perspective. And they explain why they do each endorsement. They say, we're endorsing this person for these reasons, not this person for these reasons. And if you disagree with it, you know, if you if you don't care that someone doesn't actually live in the city, if you want a conspiracy theorist on city council, I guess that's your choice. But I think we all just want people who are going to do the basics of the job. Well, I'm going to have to go reference that list because I'll out myself. I haven't cast my vote yet. And that's because, you know, oh. I know I know who I want to vote for for mayor, but I haven't done my research yet on, you know, in these city council runoff races, like who's who. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a great resource for me and probably for many others to figure out those kind of more minute details that can be hard to um, find out about. Yeah, for sure. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay, quickly, I know getting to International Airport, Bush Airport, it's not fun and the traffic can be bad and Terminal E is not great and all that. But once you are inside, my friends, 
It is great because Bush Airport was named the best airport for layovers because of Ooh. our restaurants, shops, Wi-Fi, plenty of seating, and just the ease of getting around. Now, for families, though, we came in at number three because we're not as good, all right, for families, and I can attest to this, it is kind of hard with kids traveling through Bush Airport, but we trailed Detroit and Logan International in Boston. So it is cool to see that, you know, all these great changes to Bush Airport are paying off. And it is a great airport. Once you get inside, like I am so comfortable going there about an hour, two hours early and just sitting around because it's easy. There's a lot of food places and it is just nice to be in there. So shout out to Bush Airport for doing good things. And how about Dallas coming in as the 10th worst airport for layover. So see, nobody wants to go to Dallas. And once you're in Dallas, it sucks. All right. The list says it. <laughs> and that list is provided by MarketWatch. I mean, I get to travel slash have to travel for work a lot, mm -hmm. but Bush has just over the years gotten kind of nice. And they have these things where it's these bars that are just along the hallway that you sit at. And I don't know like what consultant or restaurant entrepreneur invented these things, but I love those. Like I can chill for an hour there. You got it's outlets nice. there. I love that. Oh, yeah. I'm with you. I never use my United Passes at Bush. If I get there early, I just sit outside normal, just chill. And because there's plenty of seating, it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. You got outlets. No one's bugging you. Food is oh, yeah. right there. It's so nice. You guys have sold me because mostly when I go to Bush, I'm picking someone up. So what I experience is the line, <laughs> which is not fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what I said. Once you get inside, it's great. Getting inside can be hard at times now. Mm -hmm. So there, there is that whole thing. Like I will purposely fly out of Bush. Okay. No disrespect to Hobby. I love you too, but I I'm a Bush guy. Okay. I need to get in there and I'm cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's get to our moment of joy quickly. Asher, what do you got? Yeah, for me, the moment of joy is the uh, Keith Lee craze sweeping Houston. Um, yes. So if you're like me, and I, I'd, I'd heard his name before, but if you had to kind of look him up again when you heard these headlines, um, Keith Lee is a former MMA fighter who's now a, uh, a food critic who's also a viral TikToker. And so he visited Houston um, and... He rates all these restaurants one through 10. He's released five videos so far with like 26 million views when I last checked um, from five different restaurants across Houston. Those are Stick Talk, Better Funk Kitchen, The Breakfast Club, The Puttery, and Cool Runnings Houston. And I think people were a little nervous before the videos started coming out because his last tour in Atlanta, there were kind of some mixed reviews because he experienced what he felt like was some poor service with the uh, takeout mm -hmm. options or ability to sit down. I think he likes to really um, get the authentic experience. So when restaurant restaurant owners find out Keith Lee's there, they'll seat him. But he's like, no, like other people are waiting an hour for a seat. Like I'm not going to skip the line. Um, but he's had a good experience so far in Houston, it seems like. There is one video that I saw on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. Um, this restaurant, the, the Puttery, it's a small dessert shop in Pearland, um, had a line out the door. And this is an establishment yeah. that had like, you know, it, it had called them out on social media like a dozen times or something to come on over. They said, we don't have too many customers, but he loved it. There's a banana pudding that kind of like 
stole his heart, even though he said he doesn't really like sweets. <laughs> and um, so now they're they're seeing the the clientele, which is awesome. It's so cool to see that line. I can't wait to try it when the lines die down. By the way, that fifth restaurant was Butter Funk. Uh, that's what I, yeah, Butterfunk was you. the uh, fifth one. But mm-hmm. the Breakfast Club, I got lit up on our CityCast Houston Slack messages because I said, look, I've been to the Breakfast Club and it was it was good. It was fine, but it wasn't as good as Keith Lee has been pumping it up. Now, it's been a couple of years since I've been, but I also take into account if I'm waiting in line for, you know, 40 minutes, that food better change my life. Like I better leave with a different perspective. And that didn't happen to me when I went to the breakfast club. So thank you. Thank you. I just, the food there is good. It's good. It's good. But like to wait in line forever, like I'm hungry. It's brunch time. Just like get me some food, please. Yeah. And this is so funny to me moving from New York City to Houston because to me, the food scene in Houston is just so much more chill. Like 95% of the time you can walk up to a restaurant and get seated, even if it's one of the best restaurants in the city, which I appreciate so much. And obviously it's just a lot more affordable, the food as well. But, um, you know, 40 minute line, you know, you can, I'll I'll take it if it's good food. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it has to again. I have to leave, and I have to look at the world differently. All right, that's if I'm waiting more than twenty minutes, it better change mm-hmm. my perspective on life. But shout out to Keith Lee. The Keith Lee effect is real, and I love that he is here and he's boosting that economy, baby. More people are going out to eat because of Keith Lee, which is really cool. Evan, what's your moment of joy? Oh, my moment of joy is that the fences have gone up at Rice University and they are redoing the academic quad. This isn't just some architectural redesign, which, by the way, I I think has been long needed, but it's to move the statue of William Marsh Rice. Uh, When the nation erupted in civil rights protests several years ago, people started to put more scrutiny on the public figures we've lionized uh, out in statuary. And people started to look at William Marsh Rice and say, you know... Uh, what do we know about him? And what do we know about Rice's history? Because Rice was founded as a whites-only school, and that changed in the 60s, although it didn't stop them from admitting Hispanic and Asian students long before then. And as they dug into Rice's history, they discovered that William Marsh Rice had owned people as slaves, and nobody really knew this. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't to say they buried it, but nobody ever talked about this. And as they started to look at him as a figure, they said, well, like maybe there, we need to look at him differently. Maybe we need to shift the focus of the university so that William Marsh Rice is not necessarily at the center on this pedestal, which literally he is. And they are moving the statue off to a corner, putting him in better historic context because you know sometimes you have statues of people who have been put there because – uh, of their racism or in spite of the racism. And I think with Rice, it was in spite of it. People just didn't know that's what it was. He donated uh, all of his wealth to create this university, and that's why he's there. But we need to think about what is the university going to look like going forward? How, how do you want to be perceived in the future? So they are looking at a nuanced view that has left you know nobody really happy, but I think that's a, a good sign of compromise. Yeah, that's good to see that they're taking action, right? And not just mm-hmm. we're saying they're going to do it, but they're actually doing it. Yeah. And at the same time, they're doing a lot of stuff in looking at who they hire, the sort of classes they run, mm. the sort of students they recruit, and really trying to do more substantial changes to make sure that Rice really yes. reflects the diverse student body they want to have. Uh, but, you know, symbolism is important too. Yeah. And I think it's really important because, you know, this isn't a unique instance where when you actually take a look at the history that there's um, mm-hmm. there, there's things behind the curtain that are kind of hidden in plain sight 
For sure. Okay, my quick moment of joy, my eight-year-old daughter, she is performing tonight at Constellation Field with the Seguin Singers. She really wanted to join choir and she's in third grade, so they made an exception. I was like, can we just put her in? Come on. She really wants to do this. (laughs) So all those hours of watching Trolls and Sing and all those musical movies are going to pay off tonight as she makes her first performance in front of people. I'm so proud of her. I can't wait to watch it tonight. And we are just pumped. And we're going to go see Holiday Lights as well. You can't beat that when you're at Constellation Field. They've got their Holiday Lights. And of course, we had our Holiday Lights episode drop yesterday. So Mm -hmm. if you want to find some places, make sure you check that out as well. Asher, Evan, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun and so much good information here. We'll talk to you down the road. Thanks, Raheel. Great to be on the podcast. Have a great weekend. Chat with you all next time. That was Asher Layer Small and Evan Mintz. You can find all the stories we discuss in our show notes. That will do it for this week here on CityCast Houston. Our executive producer is Dina Kespa. Our producers are Carleon Jones and Elizabeth Kama. Our newsletter editor is Brooke Lewis, and the host is me, Raheel Ramzanali. Our music is by the band All the Kimonos. We'll be back on Monday with a look at how the city is finally fixing water billing issues. That will do it for today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something new. It was pretty wild. Taylor Swift was in my top 10 as well, but that's because of my daughter. Yeah. I give my phone to my my daughter to put on music when we're driving around, and Taylor Swift was in my top 10, which I was like, wait, what? Why was Taylor Swift in my top 10? This is weird. That's at least a little better than like when you get white noise as your, you know, second most played, you <laughs> oh, know, yeah. if you use that to sleep. <laughs> That's when you know you're old, <laughs> Asher. <laughs> hey, not speaking from experience. That was a friend. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>